Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast. I'm Stacey Hegarty, your host and Vice President of Equity and Inclusion for Envision Rise. Joining us today, we have two guests from Intermountain Health, and that's Kyle Bixenman and Clayton Vetter. Thank you both for joining us. Now, you are from Leadership and Organizational Development Department in Intermountain Health, which used to be under a different name, correct? So let's yeah. start with some introductions. Kyle, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. My name is Kyle Bixman. I'm a consultant on the leadership and organizational development team, as you mentioned, Stacey. I have spent the last actually about 15 years doing more work in the behavioral health space. So working a lot with you know, young people impacted by abuse, neglect, and trauma really writ large. And so it's a little bit more of my expertise. I recently made the transition into leadership and organizational development, bringing some of that knowledge just about the way the brain works and how it responds to stress and so on and so forth into some of that. I'm so very excited to be able to lend my knowledge and expertise when it comes to trauma-informed practice. Great. And Clayton? And I've worked in LOD, Learning and Organization Development, for the last 25 years in healthcare and know healthcare pretty well now, both clinical, inpatient, and outpatient worlds. And my goal has always been to help leaders be the most effective functional leader they can to create the best, highest performing team you can have so that translates into amazing patient care. And I also manage our diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging course portfolio and have been pretty passionate about those issues as well. Well, wonderful. I'm so glad you could both join us today. Let's get right into this because I think a lot of organizations were unprepared for the amount of trauma that was going to be foisted upon us in the past three years. I mean, for a lot of people, we didn't see this coming. So what do leaders do? What do managers do? What are you seeing as trends, mental health specifically, but our mental health and our physical health are so closely related. And if we're not well in any aspect of our lives, then we're not going to be bringing our best selves to work. So how does all of that fit together? Kyle, I'll start with you since your experiences in trauma-informed workplaces. Sure, absolutely. You know, I think part of the challenge and why this was such a nasty impact to all of us is, you know, when you think about the nature of trauma, you know, the youth that I worked with in program, they had some really negative experiences, but it wasn't the severity of an experience that was really indicative of whether or not someone would, you know, be quote unquote traumatized by it, but really more the health of their support network. And if you have a really healthy support network, you can go through some really significant challenge. And with those supports, you know, I don't want to say walk away okay, but, you know, really be buffered by those supports and not be as impacted. And I think part of the double whammy of COVID was not only was it really scary, we didn't have a lot of information, I guess is actually more the point. And there was a lot of misinformation. And so there was just a lot of fear and concern and anxiety that came about from that. And then simultaneously, we became disconnected from each other. So we had this twofer of not only, you know, this really ambiguous situation with lots of stress, but also a disconnect from our support systems. And so I think that's really left people a lot more vulnerable than, you know, other experiences they might have had where they may have experienced some significant challenge in their life, but are feeling more impacted by this. And I I think that speaks a lot to kind of the why. And so, you know, as we've been thinking about this, a lot of it is creating those opportunities to do some of that reconnecting, to create those supports and really get back to how are we engaging each other in a way that's, you know, providing that care and that concern. So. Clayton, what would you like to add to that? 
Yeah, I agree with everything Kyle's saying. It's a really interesting time to be working with leaders and trying to create a high-functioning workforce. You know, there were two things are kind of happening simul were happening simultaneously. So prior to the pandemic, you already had a lot of social unrest, and we were moving into a kind of new dialogue around how we talk about people's experiences and how those experiences are different. And then the pandemic happened and everybody turned inward. So we all hung out in our bubble, which was not particularly helpful because we were with people that, you know, all agreed with one another and that was our small bubble. And now we're back out into the workforce and we still have all those social issues that are still there very much present. I also think that the pandemic taught us that Myers-Briggs is very real. You know, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Certainly, I learned that I liked actually working remotely more than I would have ever thought I would. And I also have colleagues who found out they were more extroverted than they ever thought they were. And it was really hard to have that disconnect from a regular work environment. So I think employers are having to really balance all three of those things. How do we create work environments that allow people to show up and have social discussions because our work and personal lives overlap a lot? And how do we provide environments that are flexible enough for those folks who need contact and those folks who are fine to go off and work remotely? You know, I would have always categorized myself as pretty extroverted right up until the pandemic. And now I'm sort of, no, you know what? I'm really not. I may be friendly, but I'm not particularly extroverted that I really prefer the experience of working at home. And it, But it does get very isolating. And something I've noticed and I think a lot of people have noticed, I don't think it's just me. It's almost like we've lost our ability to interact with each other in a reasonable way when we are out in public. And maybe it's less so at work, but would guess tempers are still running really hot. People are less patient. And that's not just the pandemic. That's also a lot of people feeling as if they can't share parts of themselves anymore for fear of you're going to call me a racist. You're going to call me homophobic. You're going to call me transphobic. You're going to cancel me. You're going to call me a name. How do you deal with that in the workplace when there are so many things going on and so many people have so many hot emotions with this? So I actually do facilitate a course called Engaging Workplace Conversations at Intermountain Health, specifically to help leaders have conversations with their team that go into those territories where People might say, oh, that feels racist or transphobic or, you know, any of those things. And our goal is to get people having a conversation to recognize that we are human, that we may not say things the perfect way, but that we can learn from one another and that we can coexist really well. Mm -hmm. You know, the workplace is the one time we are out of our bubble. It is the one time we are no longer associating 100% with people who agree with us. When I'm with my closest friends and family, Whatever the topic, I know that we're pretty much going to agree with some slight exceptions. When I get to work, though, I work with people who have very different beliefs, very different political affiliations. And the point is, they are still my friends and we still work very well together. And I learn from them. And I've had some of my best conversations with colleagues around some touchy things where because we have a good relationship, we're able to have that conversation. So I like that at work, you're outside your bubble and you have that opportunity. So you may as well explore it and know that some days will be more uncomfortable than others. Kyle, this is going to go to you a little bit more, I think. How much of what we're experiencing at work 
is also just a flashpoint of something we failed to acknowledge that underrepresented and minoritized communities are already traumatized. And bringing that into the workplace where now everyone's so raw. What tools would you suggest that managers and leaders start looking at if they aren't already looking at this and acknowledging that when you've got minoritized communities and w- in the workplace, and hopefully everybody has diversity in the workplace, how do you manage that? Because that's a different kind of emotion than I'm stressed out or things at home aren't good. That The inherited trauma is something different. Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the difference is, you know, for those of us where trauma is, or, you know, the challenge, the stress is really succinct or like episodic where, you know, it's this one instance, right? I'm having a bad day today, or somebody cut me off today and now I'm coming a little hot. Like that experience, you know, we can really rationalize it a little bit and say, that's what happened. And, you know, that's why I'm a little bit more tense today or, or whatever the case may be. And I think the challenge is when you think about, you know, groups of people who've been systematically and historically, you know, put into positions where there has been more economic insecurity, or there has been, you know, more community violence, or, you know, whatever the cases might be, that historical trauma, what ends up happening is, that's not just a single instance where, you know, my brain is on stress alert, and I'm kind of reacting to the situation as though it's bigger people in those circumstances can actually grow up where their brain is always on that high alert, right? And that trauma-informed perspective really speaks to, you know, the brain being kind of this hierarchical organ that really, you know, processes things from a survival standpoint first, and then we work our way up into higher order thinking. And so, you know, if I'm somebody who's got this you know, experience of my own historical trauma or, you know, generational trauma on top of that, there may be just for them, this constant, you know, underlying state of just stress of just that same raw emotional state that, you know, me getting cut off in traffic on my way to work created for me, right? The difference is I've had sufficient experiences with being able to regulate some of those emotions back down or, you know, grown up in an environment where it eventually becomes safe again, right? I don't feel that stress. And so I can modulate those emotions and manage those things for myself. And so, you know, as a leader, if I'm thinking about people who have been, you know, impacted, you know, historically, intergenerationally, I would be focusing on helping them to find that moment to be able to regulate internally and get themselves back down. I love the comment that Clayton brought in, you know, about being able to engage each other and have rational discourse, but rational discourse lives way up here in the smartest parts of our brain. And most of the time that gets truncated because of stress, fear, frustration, whatever those emotional states are, they kind of short circuit the access to that part of our brain. So, you know, that's really where my mind goes is those conversations are so critical because they humanize us to create the us together where, you know, again, relationships are so critical to you know, human beings globally, but we can't get to that point until somebody's able to get out of that kind of mild stress response, that mild fear response. So I think that's a place that leaders can really focus on creating is how do we give people that opportunity to, to kind of come back down. Clay, anything you'd like to add with that? Yeah, you know, I agree. And I think I would add is I think more than ever, we have to be greater empathetic listeners. One of the things that is human nature if you tell me a story about your life, if you say, 
you know, I've had this experience in the workplace as a woman, and this is what I experienced, that I typically am listening to you trying to figure out how I can relate and share with you my experience that is similar so that we can go see we're a lot alike. And that's human nature, and that's not a bad thing. However, it's really important to listen and acknowledge and just be able to say, wow, I haven't experienced anything like that. How did you get through that? What did you take away from it? What did you learn from it? This is so good for me to know. Instead of trying to let you know I've had the same experience in a different set of skin, it's sometimes very important to let people have the ownership of their experience and to really acknowledge the pain that was or how challenging that was or what someone learned from it or that they're still evolving from it. And that it's not up to me to equalize it or to mirror it as much as to just listen and say that would be really hard. You know, I think there's such value in what you're saying because so often you're right. We try to connect with people by trying to show how we have this shared experience when we really don't. And sometimes that comes off as not believing the person that this thing happened to them. And how important is feeling seen and believed in the workplace? It was something that I had to work on as a leader because I immediately would, especially when I was a brand new manager, I would fall into that trap of, okay, well, if I can just find common ground, we can connect. Well, yes, but maybe not with this. Maybe there's common ground someplace else where we connect, as opposed to this employee trying to share with me something that was upsetting or something that angered them or something that just irritated them and got in their way, that maybe there's some other way that we find to connect. And that doesn't always have to be something in common, right? There's different ways to connect with people without having a shared experience. Yeah. You know, the process that you were describing, Clayton, that's such a great way for, again, us to relationally connect. And that's such a great way to help somebody who is in that stressed state come back down, right? It's not the, let me tell you my story about that. It's let me create the space for you to tell your story and feeling heard and seen. And that can really help somebody regulate that, you know, that sense inside themselves. So it's a nice component to add to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kyle, something you said to me when we first met was that the brain is use dependent and that the more it does a thing, the more it integrates it into the way it works. I think I've got that explanation somewhat correct, (laughs) but could you talk about that a little bit and what that means in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. That is exactly the case. The more the brain engages in whatever the activity is, you know, speech and language, movement, whatever it is, you know, the more that becomes a easier, but also the more that our brain goes down that track. And so it's almost ends up with, you know, we start fitting things into the pattern as opposed to fitting our thinking to the pattern that we see. And so that can create some challenges. You know, ultimately it's really useful, you know, when you're looking at, you know, engaging in a workplace because a lot of the things we do are very routine, right? We create those heuristics um, to quickly diagnose the situation, engage and provide the right, you know, Clayton and I work in medicine, so it's provide the right diagnosis, provide the right treatment, right? And the brain makes those shortcuts very rapidly and without us being really fully aware of it. 
right? And that's, you know, where we lead into things like unconscious bias as well. Mm -hmm. Our brain has created shortcuts for us to navigate the world. And a lot of those shortcuts are, oh, you look like me. That's safe. That's easy for me to navigate. I know Mm -hmm. what to expect. And those are all, you know, faulty assumptions because they're based off of my own personal experience and my experience is limited, right? It's finite. So there's kind of a double-edged sword there where it makes us much more rapidly able to, you know, respond to our environments, but at the same token can really get us stuck because it's what's the old Abraham Maslow quote, if the only tool you have is a hammer, all the problems appear as nails sort of thing. So, you know, we end up kind of stuck with this, well, what am I, how am I supposed to do this differently? And so it can create challenge kind of both ways. And the way out of it is through you know, engaging in differentiated practice and, you know, doing something different, so to speak. And along with that use dependent piece is this idea of iteration where the brain doesn't change typically after one experience, the brain changes after iterative experience, right? So in the same way of like, you know, I'm going to go run a marathon, my heart and lungs aren't going to get prepared after just, you know, Kyle running one time, I'm going to have to do this, you know, in a cadenced way over time, that'll help shape and reshape my cardiovascular system in the same way the brain responds as well. So it takes time. And so it can be challenging to learn a new skill or to unlearn something is even harder because you've got those pathways kind of already ingrained. And I would add to that, imagine the effect social media has on that as well. So, you know, now more than ever, and it happens to me too, I turn on my computer to check my email and I'm going to come to a homepage that gives me the news that feels like the news, but it's actually been tailored to what I've been clicking on for the last six months. So it leads me to believe that the world is exactly as I see it, because it's completely reinforced by what's coming up on my homepage. And I think that we live in such a challenging time where people are, we're asked to choose, we're asked to take a side constantly. You know, what side are you on? Who do you believe? Who do you vote for? What do you think is going on in the world? Who is to blame? What is right? What is wrong? And we want, we just force people to take a stand. And it's become, I think, very challenging and polarizing sometimes. And I think we have to step back and say, well, hold on, I'm still figuring things out. And I think it's possible for two ideas to exist at the same time (laughs) and to be able to have a more interesting discussion about those. And I have to wonder how much the past couple of years, I keep going back to it, have changed our brains and put us on this high alert. And because we weren't, our brains weren't prepared for this. We weren't ready for global pandemic. We went from everything's fine. Don't worry about it to, you know what, we're going to close down for a couple of weeks. You don't need to wear a mask. You're fine. And then it was utter chaos after that. Mm -hmm. So what does that do to us in other aspects of our lives. And how can we, how can, I guess my question really is for how can we better support leaders, especially leaders who work at organizations where Clay and Kyle don't exist. There isn't that resource there. There are so many organizations where your role isn't there and there may be some well-meaning people, but let's talk to the experts about how can we support leaders so that they can support their employees and everybody can get a little bit emotionally stable and a little healthier along the way. I'll speak to the kind of the first part of that, you know, anytime, you know, the brain is exposed to a big stressor, like, you know, a car accident, you know, a natural disaster pandemic, it really responds by 
becoming very sensitive to future stress, particularly if it looks or feels like the previous stress that it's experienced. The challenge with the pandemic is it was all very ambiguous, right? There wasn't some, you know, one instance of the event that we can all point our fingers to because, you know, particularly as you think about like those very, you know, one-off traumatic experience like a car accident, you know, people talk about the triggers of the next time I got into a car, I felt this sense of distress, right? And they can link it back to this very clear picture in their head of, I know why, because I had that car accident. Now the pandemic is different in the sense that there's no clear one piece of this. You know, there's there was this kind of overarching sense of malaise and ambiguity and uncertainty, which created anxiety and fear in a lot of people. And so, you know, you brought up this idea of use dependence. Our stress response systems are the exact same way. They're use dependent. So the more we engage and activate that stress response system, the more likely we are to re-engage it with smaller triggers, Mm -hmm. right? And when, you know, some of those triggers are as innocuous as a news report or being, you know, trapped at home, you know, it can really kind of perpetuate this cycle of feeling on edge and that just lower stress tolerance, that, that, you know, heightened state of anxiety sort of thing. And it's not that people are out of control or, you know, immediately overwhelmed, but it's just that the threshold of which they can tolerate that much more stress has been greatly diminished, right? And it takes less to tip them over, as it were, than previously they had, you know, managed stress in their lives. So from a perspective on why are things so much more challenging, that's, you know, the pandemic really eroded a lot of people's ability to manage and navigate stress. And it's not because they did something wrong or they're, you know, there's something flawed in them. It's just the nature of the pandemic itself really, you know, carved away at how many of us are able to, to navigate it effectively. So. So Clay, what advice would you have to a leader who is, you know, trying to balance their own feelings and mental health and physical health and still trying to be able to support the folks that they work for? And how do we do this well, especially for people who are going to be kind of cobbling this together all on their own? Yeah. You know, I would say that there are two things that are still very true about human nature. One is that we have a high need for acceptance. We want to be accepted. We want to be valued. We want to be validated as human beings. And I think the other thing we want is to know that we contribute, that what we're doing has a contributory factor. It doesn't matter whether you're leading a a group of people in a small restaurant or a fast food organization, or whether you're leading people in a small business or a medium-sized business. I think it comes down to making sure that People feel a connection, a validation when they get to work that we're glad you're here. You fit in here. You can be whomever you are, and we're going to make that work. And if it doesn't work, we'll talk about it. We'll figure out what that issue is. And then the other thing is reinforcing that people are contributing, that without you, we would be in big trouble. You contribute no matter what that contribution is. No contribution is too small, that it doesn't play a huge factor in the success of everything we do connected to it. That need for that, I think, is really important and just giving people the space to do that in any work environment because work is is so important to us. When I look at things happening in the world, and then I'll stop. When I look at bad things happening in the world where people do some things that we go, why is someone doing that? Why are they doing the things that they're doing that are really bad? Usually we see people who are very isolated, who don't have a greater connection, who question their contribution, who question whether they're significant, whether they fit, 
And in the absence of finding that validation in ways that would be healthy, like a good work environment, they start to find it and feed off of, you know, strange things on the internet or things that feed that. And then they start to think, well, this is going to be the right thing to do. I'm going to pick up a weapon and this is what I'm going to do. And yeah, I'd like to see less of that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to see less of that. So, you know, people contribute. Very important. So I think that's a really great spot for us to end because what I hear you saying is contribution, validation, and inclusion are so very important to taking care of the people that we work with every day, taking care of ourselves, taking care of one another, and being able to spot some warning signs of an employee who may not be doing as well as they need to be doing. So any guidance there on what do you do when you start to see those warning signs? What do you do? I would go back to kind of what where Clayton was, which is really going back to this idea of connection. You know, human beings by nature are social creatures. We pick up off each other. Our moods, attitudes, affects, they're all contagious because we are designed to work together. And when we are feeling part of the same in-group, that's where we do our best, right? When we feel connected to each other in a space, that's where we are, you know, most resilient. And so when you recognize that there's somebody who maybe is not feeling that level of connection, you know, I would focus on trying to find ways to reach out in a way that's going to feel supportive, non-threatening, and genuine to that person. Because, you know, the other piece there is, you know, if somebody is struggling and doesn't, you know, respond to that connection or, you know, you're connecting in a way that doesn't feel safe to them, it can accidentally push them the other way, right? So just being really mindful of, you know, reaching out that way. And then to that end, to a certain degree is also taking care of ourselves. Like I said, we're contagious. You know, if I'm having a bad day and I engage with people around me, they will pick up on that and they will mirror and reflect that back. So, you know, taking care of ourselves so that we are able to be our best selves is important, but also just so that we're not, you know, vicariously contributing to the challenge of others. Yeah. Play some final thoughts on that. I agree with everything I was saying. You know, Kyle and I work together a lot and we both share a good sense of humor. And that's something that always keeps me going is the ability to laugh, to have something that, you know, makes me smile and laugh is really important to me. And I certainly don't want to sugarcoat it. There are a lot of mental health challenges out there that are very serious, that people need professional help that, you know, any manager may not be equipped to handle. But just trying to steer people in the right direction to being able to say, who loves you? You know, who are the people who love you? There are people who love you, who relies on you, who needs you. They still need you. You know, reach out to those people. Try to get any kind of conversation going you can that will help you a little bit. So it's a tough world. So laugh more, eat more, exercise more, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I was on board for the first two. (laughs) Well, Kyle Bixenman and Clayton Vetter, thank you both so much for sharing your expertise with us today. There's so many great takeaways from this conversation. I appreciate your time and we appreciate Intermountain Health sharing your expertise with us. Have a wonderful day. And for our listeners who would like more information on us, you can find us at envisionrise.com. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, diversity and inclusion should not be treated as a one-off initiative. And so with your help, we can get this message to more people. 
subscribe, rate, and review the show and be a part of making a difference because it starts with you.